Welcome back to The Health Beat, a podcast created by medical students that takes the current pulse of news stories featuring public health and medical issues. I'm Ali Burgess. And I'm Neha Anand. In today's episode, I talk with Vimal, one of my classmates in my master's in public health program, and also a fellow medical student. We talk about the pandemic's disruption of education and research that assesses the safety of in-person schooling. We are both aspiring pediatricians, so this topic was of great interest to us and has definitely been a controversial topic during the pandemic. Also important, if we want to safely reopen schools, to continue taking precautions in the community. The pandemic and the changes that it's brought about in schooling have had profound impacts on disparities and particularly how communities of color and low-income communities have been affected. As pediatric health professionals, the role that we have to play is to continue to advocate for the health of children and to find ways to, to mitigate the negative impacts that the pandemic has had on child health. But first, let's discuss some recent headlines. Ali, you were planning to go into a surgical field. Did you hear about the first ever successful face and double hand transplant? Yes. So the patient's name is Joe DeMio, who had been severely burned in a car accident, and the surgery was performed at NYU. In the past, there have only been two other face-hand simultaneous transplant attempts, and in each case, there were adverse outcomes, with one patient ultimately dying due to infection and the other requiring removal of the hands due to tissue death. This patient, Joe, had received many blood transfusions and skin grafts during the time he spent in the burn unit, making his immune system highly sensitized because of exposure to other donors' antigens. His panel reactive antibody, or PRA, was 94%, which essentially means that there was only a 6% chance of him finding a suitable donor. Wow, that's pretty amazing that he was able to find a donor with those chances. Yes, and that's not the only amazing thing. There were other technological advancements that were really impressive with this surgery. They used 3D computer surgical planning to enable a patient-specific cutting guide and to prepare for perfect alignment of plates and screws to anchor the grafted face. The full surgeries involved transplant of both hands to the mid-forearm. For the face, the forehead, eyebrows, nose, eyelids, lips, and underlying skull and bone segments were all transplanted to Joe's face. And after the surgery, close immune system monitoring and immune suppression prevented early rejection of the transplanted tissue, which is always a risk in cases of transplant surgery. Well, it's great to hear about a medical advance that was not related to the pandemic. Definitely. (laughs) Yeah, but speaking of the pandemic, Due to it, the Super Bowl this past Sunday looked quite different. The Super Bowl was one of the biggest events during this global pandemic. Only 25,000 fans were allowed to be at the game, including 7,500 vaccinated healthcare workers. And the players from both teams, the Bucks and the Chiefs, were tested more frequently for the coronavirus before the big day. And related to the NFL, the NFL commissioner has offered all 30 NFL stadiums as mass vaccination sites for coronavirus. Mass vaccinations have already been occurring at other stadiums, like those of the LA Dodgers and the New York Yankees. This may help out with vaccine distribution. Yeah, that would be great because this vaccine rollout in the U.S. hasn't been very smooth. And speaking of which, it can be hard to know whether you 
or your relatives or your friends may be eligible for the vaccine right now, as this varies from state to state. So you can look up your eligibility by visiting your state or county's health department website. You can Google, for example, Maryland Health Department, and there will often be information and also potentially a way to register to get the vaccine. Also, retail pharmacies like CVS and Walgreens will be receiving vaccines the week of February 8th, according to the CDC. So you can look up the website of a pharmacy near you to see if they will be vaccinating in your area soon. It's great to hear about emerging ways that vaccines can become more accessible to right now, mainly the elderly and essential workers. Speaking of essential workers, one controversial aspect has been if teachers should be fully vaccinated before in-person education resumes. And COVID-19 has disrupted schooling for many children across the world. And there's emerging data now on the safety of in-person schooling that may help guide the reopening of schools and address the safety concerns in the midst of this pandemic. And that's what I talked about with Vimal. So let's transition now to our conversation to delve more into this. My name is Vimal, and I'm a med student and a public health student. And recently, I've been following the issue of school reopenings pretty closely. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about this issue with you as we're both aspiring pediatricians. This is a really complex ethical issue. So let's first talk about this recent CDC review that came out about studies on transmission in schools and what that means for safety of in-person schooling. The CDC review was published in JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, on January 26th, and they reviewed several studies that looked at COVID transmission in schools. So in the United States, they looked at studies in Mississippi, in North Carolina, and in rural Wisconsin. And in all of these studies, they found that when taking the proper precautions and following best practices. So things like universal masking and social distancing, schools were not significant drivers of COVID transmission. For example, in the study that took place in my home state of Wisconsin, they found that schools that had high mask wearing adherence had lower incidences of infection than the surrounding community. Of the 191 cases that they found in staff and students at the school, only seven were traced back to in-school transmission. They also looked at some studies outside of the U.S. to add some global context to this. So they cited some data from a report from the European CDC in December that looked at 12 countries. And there in Europe, they found that, again, when there were clusters of infections from schools, they were quite small, fewer than 10 cases, and couldn't often be linked to the schools. So they also found that schools were not associated with increasing community transmission. And many European countries did, in fact, keep schools open during Europe's large second wave of cases in the fall. So all this data is reassuring that schools are not a big driver of infections, but the article does note that large outbreaks have happened in schools. For example, in Israel, there was an incident two weeks after reopening schools in mid-May of 2020 when two students who came to school with symptoms of COVID led to about 13% of students and 17% of staff getting infected. However, the study notes that this could be attributed to having crowded classrooms and not following physical distancing and also having continuous AC that 
recycle the, the air within classrooms. So outbreaks can happen when there's not sufficient precautions in place. And the CDC article also mentions that there's specific school activities that can increase the risk of transmission, specifically high school athletic teams having social gatherings and also sporting events. They cited a study related to wrestling tournaments involving 10 schools that led to about 30% of student athletes, coaches, and referees testing positive for the virus. The main takeaway from this article was that schools that have proper precautions in place like mask wearing and distancing really aren't considered a main driver for infections in a community. But there are certain things that we can do to limit the risk in schools like not having indoor sports practice or competitions. And again, having those precautions like mask wearing and social distancing. It's also important if we want to safely reopen schools to continue taking precautions in the community as well. At the same time that the CDC released this review of data about school-based transmission, they also called for reducing transmission in the community by closing high-risk settings, such as indoor dining in restaurants, gyms, and bars. The CDC felt that taking these steps would help reduce community transmission to make the return to schools even safer. This became a source of controversy as well in the fall, for example, in places like New York City, where there was a 3% positivity threshold for school reopening. Once the 3% positivity threshold was crossed, New York City schools, which had partially reopened, had to close again. But at the same time, indoor dining remained open, which led to a significant amount of controversy in New York, because on the one hand, indoor dining was an activity that was tied to high risk of community transmission of COVID, whereas schools were not but indoor dining was continuing to remain open while schools were closing. And as a result of that controversy, New York City did ultimately reverse course. Teachers are particularly concerned about the safety of in-person schooling, both teachers and, and staff. And this is very understandable because they're considered essential workers. There were a number of cases in the fall where teachers did die from COVID. And though there's not any current evidence that teachers are more at risk than others, they have a reason to be concerned. They also have to deal with the stresses of keeping up precautions for students. Certainly, like you said, this concern is completely understandable, given, like you said, there had been some high-profile cases where, where teachers had contracted COVID and, and died in the fall. The American Federation of Teachers, one of the largest teachers unions in the country, noted that 530 school employees who are AFT affiliates died in 2020 from COVID. So certainly teachers are concerned about their safety. And this has led to a lot of confrontations between teachers unions and cities that are trying to reopen their schools. Chicago right now is facing a potential teacher strike. And in San Francisco, the city is actually suing the school district to reopen its schools. And it's led to a rather nasty confrontation where the city attorney Dennis Herrera actually claimed that the school district's reopening plan should earn a grade of an F. This certainly raises a number of ethical questions about prioritizing the concerns and safety of teachers while also considering the harm that's done to, to students from staying out of in-person learning. There's also a big question about prioritization for vaccines. In many states now, teachers are eligible for vaccines, and that could really help assuage the concerns of many teachers who are going back However, there's controversy there as well because many teachers may be in lower risk categories. 
For example, there is an op-ed that came out in the New York Times today by Anton Disclafani, who talked about how she was able to get the vaccine because she teaches at Auburn University. But she's an otherwise healthy 39-year-old. And she noted that there are other people who really needed the vaccine more than she did. At the same time, there are teachers who fall into higher risk categories. So that is something to keep in mind when thinking about vaccines. Definitely, that's a controversial issue right now with the rollout of vaccines. There's also been controversy related to how the closing of schools has impacted students with disabilities and how it's impacted health disparities in general. Many students with disabilities rely on in-person schooling for therapy, and while schools are closed, they're not able to get that. But there's also concern that students who do have a disability may be at higher risk for getting the virus. So it's a complex issue, as well as how school closures have impacted health disparities. The the pandemic and the changes that it's brought about in schooling have had profound impacts on disparities, and particularly how communities of color and low-income communities have been affected. For many urban school districts, for example, Many of the best practices that were mentioned earlier in terms of social distancing and upgrading ventilation systems are are that much more challenging because many urban school districts have aging infrastructure, you know, old school buildings that were built many decades ago. And so that's created a lot of problems in terms of school reopening, but also looking at remote education, there are significant gaps in access to technology. When you look at school going completely online, if a student doesn't have access to the internet or doesn't have a computer at home that makes it very difficult for them to participate in online learning. There's also been an issue in many school districts where the number of failing grades has increased. And in many cases, the increase in the number of failing grades reflects existing inequities in education. So in urban school districts like St. Paul, Minnesota, and in Houston, Texas, we saw the number of failing grades rise to around 40%. And even in wealthy counties like Fairfax County, Virginia, which is one of the the suburban counties around Washington, D.C., there was a near doubling in the number of students who received failing grades from 6% to 11%. And again, it was communities that often were already struggling in the education system that were most impacted. In Fairfax County, they specifically discussed English language learners and students with disabilities being the most impacted by this rise in failing grades. So remote education has had pretty significant deleterious impacts on communities of color who have already been marginalized by the education system and lower-income students who have already been marginalized by the education system. However, as schools have started to think about reopening, there's also been a lot of mistrust in those communities, much of which stems from historical inequities in education. So the New York Times recently reported that in many school districts, particularly in big cities, there are fewer students of color returning as compared to white students. And this is another way in which the pandemic has taken a disproportionate toll on lower-income communities and communities of color. In Chicago, for example, for two-thirds of white students, their families said that they'd send them back to in-person school, but only about a third of Black students' families said that they would send their students back to in-person school. And a lot of that, like I was saying, stems from a historical mistrust in the education system that for so long has had issues with institutional discrimination, against these communities, racial segregation as well, which even more than 60 years after Brown v. Board of Education, the landmark Supreme Court case that ordered the desegregation of schools, many school districts are just as segregated now as they ever have been. Um, Some of that comes from resistance to desegregation programs that came about in the wake of that 
Brown v. Board decision. But at the end of the day, many families feel like the education system has failed them, uh, many families from these communities. And so that has led to a lot of mistrust in the education system. And that's something that, that really needs to be addressed in school reopening plans by districts. It's a great point that this mistrust has to be addressed. And it's not hard to imagine that these disparities because of disruption in education can have long lasting effects on children. That brings me to what is the role of pediatricians or health professionals in this issue of school reopenings? Pediatricians are concerned about the health of children in all settings, including at school, and are seeing the consequences of school closures on children's health, both physically and mentally. It's likely that Jamal and I both in our continued training will see the consequences of the pandemic and school disruption on children's health. And like you said, it's really imperative on us as health professionals in, in pediatrics to take a look at the impact that the pandemic has had on education and on children and to think about how that's going to play out in the years to come. When you consider the fact that for many students, it's essentially been close to a year of missed school. As pediatricians who are interested in public health, we need to think about the impact on equity, as mentioned earlier, and the fact that this is a pandemic that has taken a disproportionate toll on lower income communities and communities of color, and certainly the impacts of education have mirrored that as well. Allison Masonbrink and Emily Hurley, in writing in the American Academy of Pediatrics website, stated, as pediatric leaders, we need to advocate for strategic, immediate, and long-term response efforts to offset the deleterious impacts on children due to reduced access to vital school-based resources. So as pediatric health professionals, the role that we have to play is to continue to advocate for the health of children and to find ways to, to mitigate the negative impacts that the pandemic has had on child health. And it's for that reason that the American Academy of Pediatrics or the AAP has created guidance for reopening schools. Their most updated guidance acknowledges that there is a lower risk of transmission of COVID in younger children. And I have this quote of school transmission mirrors but does not drive community transmission. On that point, the AAP has also been advocating for increased federal assistance to all schools, regardless of whether current local context allows for in-person instruction. This particular part of the statement was really emphasized last summer when the Trump administration threatened to cut off funding for school districts that chose not to reopen in person. So the AAP came together with the National Education Association, American Federation of Teachers, and the American Association of School Administrators to release a statement in which they noted that in many communities, the level of community transmission did not allow for in-person instruction and school districts should not have their federal funding be dependent on whether or not they chose to reopen for in-person schooling or not. So in making the statement, the AAP was acknowledging the importance of safe reopening of schools and was really banding together with these other organizations that represent educators as well, who all have the common interest of, of wanting to make sure that students receive education safely. And they also clearly state that school closures worsen inequities, as you were talking about earlier, Vimal, and it's really important to address this racial and social inequity that school closures have worsened. They outline that disparities in funding, in facilities and staffing and other resources need to be addressed. Like we said earlier, that mistrust of the education system needs to be addressed as well.
If I could add one more point about the widening racial and social inequities, while many public school districts have closed or gone to remote learning, many private schools remained open. And so that's sort of another aspect of this that we need to think about as well. Often funding is dependent on enrollment and private schools are often are generally more accessible to wealthier students or wealthier families. This is another way in which the pandemic has you know, caused these widening disparities in schooling. That's a great point. The AAP also has very detailed guidelines about interventions that schools can take to reduce risk. That includes things like wearing cloth face coverings in school if students are older than two years old or physically distancing desks and also practicing physical distancing between staff and teachers as well as students. They also emphasize that a parent should keep children at home if they're sick and staff members should also stay home if they're sick. The AAP also notes that a school should continue to plan for students who receive free and reduced meals to continue to receive those even if the school is closed or they cannot attend school because of an illness. And Vimal, I know you've done some research on what schools have been doing for, for this issue. Yeah, in a lot of in a lot of cities to ensure continuity of school meals, many school districts have set up distribution centers where students can pick up school meals. They've also tried to improve outreach for remote education more broadly by providing students with Chromebooks and with Wi-Fi hotspots to be able to access remote lectures if they don't have reliable access to technology at home. So those are two ways in which school districts have tried to, to mitigate the potential harms of remote learning. And now it's important to note as well that this is not just an issue in the United States. This is really a global issue. And so last month, the executive director of UNICEF, Andrea Four, came out with a statement talking about the potential harms of the loss of a year of school globally. And so what Henrietta Four said is that despite overwhelming evidence of the impact of school closures on children, and despite increasing evidence that schools are not drivers of the pandemic, too many countries have opted to keep schools closed, some for nearly a year. The cost of closing schools, which at the peak of the pandemic lockdowns affected 90% of students worldwide and left more than a third of school children with no access to remote education has been devastating. So while certainly a very ethically complex question, it is important to note that this is really an issue that is global in scale. And many countries certainly don't have the resources to deal with it in the ways that we have in the United States and in many other countries. And so it's important to note that this is really going to be something that pediatricians and educators worldwide are going to have to think about moving forward. Yeah, that's very true. And even though this is a very complex issue, there's one thing that we all can do to make it safer for kids, teachers, and staff to return to school, and that's doing our job to reduce community spread of the virus. So continuing to wear masks, to physically distance, to practice good hand hygiene. The only way that children and teachers and staff are going to be able to go back to normal education is if this pandemic starts to slow down and eventually stop at some point. So I want to thank you so much, Vimal, for sharing your knowledge with us and for discussing this. It was great to have you on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me to join and for inviting me to share my thoughts. Mm-hmm.